South Africa today is often known as the Rainbow Nation, a multiracial society whose first black president in 1994, Nelson Mandela, encouraged tolerance, equality, and harmony among a previously heavily divided people. Mandela's policy was at sharp odds with the country's past, a nation in which state-sponsored racism in the form of apartheid touched every corner of society, leaving a stain of injustice that endured for decades. While the world is familiar with Mandela's remarkable story from prisoner to president, relatively little is known about some of the other campaigners of the period, including one, a Muslim, a preacher, and a family man. I grew up with many stories about uh, my grandfather, about Imam. Many stories of him as a hero, as a martyr. Often people would talk about the earthquake and how he inspired many people in, uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle, especially in the Western Cape. Um, I grew up with the book, The Killing of the Imam, and the cover of the book with the man falling down the stairs. And they were talking to, about him as the Imam. Right? He would have this title. So for me as a kid, I thought, must have been an amazing and important man. The man was Imam Abdullah Harun, a community leader born in 1923 in the shadow of Cape Town's Table Mountain. His was a determined struggle for justice and equality that would eventually cost him his life. Over 50 years after Haroun's death, Muslims in South Africa gathered to celebrate the life of the anti-apartheid campaigner. He rose to prominence in 1955 when, aged only 32, he put his name forward to become the youngest ever Imam of Cape Town's Al Jamia Mosque. Here was a man who clearly broke the mold his Western appearance, sharp suit, striped shirt with matching cufflinks were hardly traditional imam dress. Some thought that his modern, useful style made him unfit for the role, but Haroun presented his personal vision and, not for the last time, won over hearts and minds. What happened was that there was an opportunity at, a, at the local masjid um, in Claremont. And many of these positions, they have elections. And literally he won by a small margin because there were other candidates as well. And they say even his father was one who voted against him because they felt age is an important thing uh, for a person to become an imam. They did not consider knowledge 
and wisdom as important things. They considered age as an important thing. Um, but Imam uh, uh, proved them all wrong. He had, he had far more wisdom and far more insight than even the older ones that existed in Cape Town. The young Imam hit the ground running, setting up adult education classes, chairing debates, and breathing new life into the mosque's busy weekly activities. Today, South Africa has its societal problems, but the 1960s were very different times. The white National Party government introduced apartheid, a system of institutionalized racial segregation. It divided South Africans racially, dictating their political, economic and social rights. The minority white population dominated the majority of black Africans who had few rights under apartheid. Indians and mixed-race people, so-called coloreds, had some additional privileges. If you want to understand what is apartheid, look at Israel, uh, occupied Palestine. It's a settler community that came from outside. They built the infrastructure and a very efficient infrastructure as well. And now they say, we own the land, we are going to rule you. But what apartheid did was, it, it was white on the one side and what they considered non-white. It's not a term that I expect, except because non-white means you are a non-person. But in, for the sake of reference, but they took the non-white and further divided them into three basic groups. Africans, or as they referred to them as natives, uh, uh, coloreds and Indians. And they gave each of these three groups different or lesser privileges. So the Indians were probably the most privileged of the three groups. Then we had the coloreds and then we had the Africans or the natives. Many Muslim leaders in South Africa, known as the ulama, opted not to campaign actively against apartheid, preferring not to rock the political boat. Muslims in apartheid um, were, for a long period, um, they did not take a, a very political stand. They were rather loyal, in loyalty to the uh, ruling system. There is an interesting uh, quotation that is uh, written in the Muslim News. This is a, a religious Muslim newspaper in '64, uh, and uh, they wrote, Has the government forbidden the worship of Allah and the spreading of Islam? Has the government closed down or ordered the, the demolishment of any mosque in a declared white area? If the government has ordered us, to, us as Muslims to desert the faith of our forefathers, then our ulama would have been the first to urge us to resist even to death. And uh, welcome to Voice of the Cape Drive Time. I'm Shafiq Morton. Assalamu University of the Western Cape receives a grant to promote gender equity, our weekly Africa report, and after five, Jamal Khashoggi, one year on. What's happening? In fact, and, uh, the interesting thing about Imam Harun, that when he started to become politically aware and when he started to talk about political awareness, and remember, political awareness in South Africa in those days was about basic human rights. Unfortunately, and this is a big blot on our community, a lot of the ulama of the time, a lot of the community elders of the time told him to keep quiet. They said he was going and doing things that was going to cause trouble. 
But rather than avoiding trouble, the young Imam Harun seemed to attract it. The Imam and the mosque community devoted a lot of time and effort to helping local poor and underprivileged families. Harun gave special attention to families whose breadwinners had been forced into exile or had died fighting the apartheid regime. His focus was on seeking justice and speaking out against the whole range of unfair treatment. I think one, one needs to first of all look at the Imam's political activism. Uh, it didn't just suddenly happen where he realized, look, you know, there is a political struggle and I have to get involved. Uh, it was a process for the Imam as well. And the process started when the Imam, because of his social justice conscience, he was a man who uh, had empathy for people who were suffering, people that were afflicted. In, in his own community, in his own jama'ah as an imam. And he used to be a uh, sales representative for a company that used to sell sweets. And he used to go into the townships and he used to see the conditions in the townships. And he started interacting with the people. He was um, a consultant, if one would say, to this company called Roundtrees and that this gave him the opportunity to be able to go into the different townships. He used this opportunity, yes, to sell them chocolates. You know, they probably had shops. But he also used this opportunity to find out what is happening to the uh, families of the, of the people that has been arrested and imprisoned without trial, or they just disappear without a trace. And he used this opportunity uh, to um, deepen his political uh, circles and also contacting and, and affiliating himself to what was currently happening. As the South African authorities became increasingly aware of Haroon's political activism, the threat to his personal safety also grew. Imam Haroon contacted an emerging political opposition movement, the Pan-Africanist Congress. The PAC, like the opposition African National Congress, was heavily opposed to South Africa's notorious pass laws. These dictated that black people had to carry identity documents at all times, which controlled their movements and access to work they became one of the most hated aspects of apartheid laws. Meanwhile, Haroon began to look politically beyond his own Muslim community. Whereas Imam was of those people who said that we are all human beings, that we must embrace each other, that when we suffer, we suffer together. So not only did Imam transcend the barrier of madhab, that he actually brought people together from different backgrounds. He ignored and was not interested in whether you were from India or you were from uh, Malaysia or from Africa. That was not important for him. As anti-apartheid resistance simmered, it would not be long before it boiled over into violence. The 21st of March 1960 was about to carve itself tragically into South African history. 
The Pan-Africanist Congress called for a demonstration against the pass laws. A crowd gathered to express their resistance to the pass laws at the township of Sharpeville in the old Transvaal province. The day started peacefully, but as many as 7,000 protesters gathered in front of the police station. Just after 1 p.m., there was an altercation between the officer in charge and the demonstration leaders. There were 168 police and they opened fire. Chaos ensued. By the end of the day, 69 demonstrators lay dead and hundreds more were injured. What we now know as the Sharpeville Massacre became a notorious event in South Africa's troubled history. Abdullah Haroun was not at Sharpeville. However, those close to him state that the massacre moved him to intensify his resistance to apartheid. Firstly, he had challenges within his community. Um, but clearly many people were aware that this man was not moving in comfortable circles. That not only was he speaking against the apartheid government, but that he was actually actively working to bring them down. By the 1960s, the apartheid government had already banned two of the major political organizations, meaning it was illegal to be a member of them. So Sharpeville massacre is one of those points in our history that separates, that stands as a beacon of, cha of the challenge to the apartheid government. So when Imam Harun joined up with, and here's the interesting thing, he worked closely with these people. He never joined the organizations. He was very close with them. But the apartheid government, when he saw that those people are from that background, they immediately associated him with them. Some six months later, in October 1960, there was a referendum restricted to white voters on whether South Africa should break its ties with Britain and become a republic. South Africa had been a member of the British Commonwealth since 1926 as a self-governing dominion of the British Empire. It was a bitter, divisive campaign. The Republican side united under the slogan to reunite and keep South Africa white. The result was close, a narrow victory for the governing white national party of Henrik Verward. With the referendum having narrowly passed, the Republic of South Africa was constituted on the 31st of May, 1961. The majority black population reacted with horror. A three-day general strike was called, which Imam Haroun supported by encouraging Muslims to fast for three days of peaceful protest. The Imam's action was remarkable at a time when few Muslims in South Africa opposed the government so overtly. He just wanted to make sure the well-being are taken care of. But this also opened his eyes and his mind into what was happening and how cruel the gov apartheid government was during the time of apartheid. And with my father's involvement with the African people in Langa, in Ayanga and Guguletu, he, he obviously met with uh, brothers that saw how he uh, communicated with him. And I remember my mother always used to say that uh, when he, we were living in the same area, not in this particular house, but in a different house, they used to come and visit my father many times at the house. Well, many times they will come and my father will take them away. 
Throughout the 1960s, Imam Haroun continued to live a double life. Outwardly, he was a religious and community leader, a family man. But at the same time, he was a committed political activist, opposing South Africa's apartheid regime whenever possible. Occasionally, these two roles combined, as they did in 1968, when he went on a pilgrimage to Islam's holiest city, Mecca. From there, he traveled to Cairo and onwards to London, where he met the leadership in exile of South Africa's opposition groups. He also developed close ties with a Christian organization and channeled money from British sympathizers to support families of political detainees and victims of the Sharpeville massacre. When he came in London, he met with a priest by the name of Canon John Collins. And this man was the leader of an organization that channeled money into South Africa and gave money particularly to the families of those people who were detained under apartheid. And he found in Imam Harun an honorable and honest man with whom he could convey the money and support people. And so Imam became, a, as a direct challenge to the apartheid government, they saw that if we arrest the father of this house and Imam comes and he brings food to that house, he pays their rent, he looks after their children, then they are defeated. And so they were very angry about how Imam continued to help, especially those people who were in prison on Robben Island and in various prisons. You see this newspaper which shows another part of his life, which he was a travel uh, specialist. You build up this, uh, this image of this man who's an imam, father, political activist, and uh, he worked for Wilson's Roundtrees. But then, curiously, he's also like a travel specialist. So what is he doing? For me, he's hustling, right? He's just like doing a number of things in order to... Uh, yeah, to get around, to meet people, to maybe it was a way for him to travel. Towards the end of his London trip, Abdullah Haroun received news that the South African security services were aware of his clandestine activities and that his life was in danger. Returning to Cape Town, he learned that four campaigners had been arrested and had later died in police custody. The official cause of death was given as suicide. He continued both his activism and charity work and received funds from his close friend and anti-apartheid campaigner, Canon John Collins, and his British supporters. On the morning of the 28th of May 1969, as Imam Haroun was preparing for a major Muslim religious commemoration, he was summoned to the notorious state security office in Cape Town's Caledon Square. As he left the house, he assured his wife and family that he'd be back safely that evening. It was a promise that, through no fault of his own, he was unable to keep. He continued to do that which people considered was very dangerous. Um, and people remember Imam at different ways. Um, but that part which was the most dangerous, he took all on himself. And he was always conscious that people, that the security police were watching him. He was also very conscious that the security police 
had amongst his jama'ah and in various places that he went amongst the Muslims, he, they had people who were paid to tell stories about him. But he was aware that, he, that there were always cars standing near his house, white men sitting, watching what he was doing. So um, in that way, um, he was aware that they were interested in what he was doing and he used to take a lot of precautions. So if he needed to go and see people who were members of band organizations, he'll ask one student, well, take me from point A to point B. Then he'll ask separately to another one, come fetch me by point B and take me to point C. So he was very aware of uh, these types of precautions that needed to be taken. Days of detention turned into weeks and then months. Still, the police interrogation of Abdullah Haroun continued. They wanted to know absolutely everything about his political activities, where he went, who he met, and what he said. The police intelligence was detailed. They asked about his secret meetings with South African opposition leaders in exile. And they homed in on his friendship with Canon John Collins, whom the Imam had first met on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So while the police asked a lot of questions, it seemed they already knew the answers. Imam Haroun waited for the police to press charges, but yet none came. The memory I have of the day of the arrest was, um, it's still very much itched in my mind. And um, I remember um, the police coming the morning to our home. I wasn't at school and uh, they, my, my father, I remember my father telling my mother that he's going with him to Caledon Square, that they want to speak to him at the Caledon Square, that is uh, one of the prison uh, in the city of Cape Town. The message that the police gave to the community, they could see that the Imam had this power to galvanize this community, which is very small, but quite strong economically and strong in history in the country, right? And very close community. Uh, and so I think it was this preemptive strike that they wanted to take him or to shake him up before he had the chance to uh, gather a body of people. It was 1969 and the South African anti-apartheid activist, the Imam Abdullah Haroun, was being held without trial in Cape Town's notorious Caledon Square police station. Despite being a high-profile community leader and editor of the city's Muslim newspaper, there was relatively little public outcry over his detention. Imam Haroun was part of board of Muslim News, the newspaper, and one should expect that when one member of the board is uh, holding detention that there is uh, an article about it. But uh, that was interesting that, that they did not really react on this. And they, they wrote, Muslim news is not a political paper and does not publish political views on news. It only concerns itself with the religious and social needs of the Muslim community. Whatever political views Imam Harun expresses is entirely his own views and not in the capacity as editor of the Muslim news. 
it's it's a big distance that they they make and and it's we are we are clean and it's his problem and not our problem I, and i think this tells you a lot about the the muslim position from the 28th of may until the 19th of august he was kept in one place uh, which is now uh, referred to as Cape Town Central Police Station. Um, and he uh, was kept there without there being any contact with anybody. And so they would say that, um, like normal people go to work, they'll come in at 8 o'clock. And they would question the Imam from 8 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then they say, sometimes I used to do night shift. Then I'd interrogate Imam from six o'clock in the evening till six o'clock in the morning. Okay. So this was the uh, uh, round the clock, the way they used to uh, uh, continue to interrogate him. What my father did do, he managed to smuggle out letters out of prison. How he did that was that the flask and the, the, the thermal flask inside and the outer part of the flask could separate. And then my mum sent him biscuits to prison, cream cracker biscuits, I don't know if you know about cream cracker biscuits, but on the cardboard he used to write the letters addressed to her and letters addressed to the late uh, Barney Desai. He was a member of the PAC, the Pan-African National Congress movement. So that is how the letters got out of prison. So the, the police, they never picked up that, but the, he, he, he smuggled out quite a few letters. Haroon contacted one of the London activists, Barney Desai, during his detention. Later, Desai would become the Imam's biographer. This particular paper um, is, I think, where one of the first notes first start coming out. Um, he writes on these, uh, on these papers and he gets it smuggled out by his young son, Muhammad who comes to bring him some food and drinks and he manages to smuggle this information out to my father who was living in London. The effect of the letters on my father um, for us as children was very traumatic. He felt somehow that he was responsible uh, because the Imam had been to see him and they'd organised to do certain things together. Uh, arrange for money, for support for the people inside the country. And he felt that if the Imam hadn't been there to see him, that the Imam would still be alive. And this tortured him, it, it uh, made him very depressed for many years. He had to put, he had to document this story. Um, it, yeah, it had a very devastating effect on our family.
For a total of 123 days, Abdullah Haroun was held at Caledon Square Police Station. Only those who were there can truly know what happened over those four long months. But it is known that Haroun was subject to torture. Reports emerged of beatings with police batons, two broken ribs, serious bruising, electrocution, and needles being stuck in Haroun's spine. Mr. Barney Desai became the person who then writes a book about his life uh, later on. And in there, he told about two types of questions that they were asking. The one that they were asking was largely about who was he giving money to? Canon John Collins put money into your account. Then you gave the money to who? You know, those types of questions. Um, and so, of course, uh, given the length of time that Imam was held, it was clear that Imam did not give them the answers they wanted. The second issue is that they considered Imam Harun as somebody, as a recruiter of, of young people which he was sending outside of the country to get military training, but which they would then fight the apartheid government. So in there, there's clear reference to the military wing of the Pan-Africanist Congress in one of his letters. Um, and then, of course, a clear indication uh, to CC, which is Canon, Canon Collins. Unfortunately, there was a spy um, for the apartheid regime within their group. They'd been very close friends, like a family living together. Uh, and the imam inadvertently found out about um, the spy when he heard the special branch over speaking and saying, does Barney know that Kenny sold him out? Now, that made perfect sense because of all the other people that were in the room. But this is something the imam overheard. So this, is, this kind of information is contained um, in this part of the document. It's the other side of the, of the, of the, of the cracker. So uh, I think that this information, when they do uh, open an inquest into the death of the imam, we will now be able to lay to rest who actually betrayed, betrayed him. Unable to visit the imam while he was in detention, his family grew increasingly concerned about him. Support came from a British-born South African politician, Catherine Taylor, who raised the imam's detention in Parliament. The police minister replied that it was not in the public interest to comment on Haroun's detention. On the 27th of September 1969, the police revealed that Imam Haroun had fallen down a small staircase in the police station and, as a result of the fall, had died. Imam's body was found in the morning of 1975 and, and 1969 um, in Maitland Police Station. So the uh, local policeman who was there opened up and he found Imam's body slumped on the floor. And uh, they then, the security police, informed his uh, wife that Imam had died. 
Over 50 years later, Haroun's family still refused to accept the claim of accidental death, given the overwhelming weight of evidence to the contrary. Where I go to the police station, where he was found dead, where he spent the last few months. And I went, not, you know, to see where he lived his final moments, but also to see these stairs that they said he fell down. There's like two or three steps, not very big. Uh, yeah, here they are. Spanker and his brother. So, yeah. It's a space that also, over all the years of people talking about Imam Haroon, what he did, had never been explored. So, yeah, I wanted to go there myself. It was, you know, moving for me because I felt some sadness, you know. But also I felt good. I felt kind of connected, more connection with him in a way, as a grandson. We were informed as a family that our father, when he was, he was killed, by falling down a few flights of stairs. And as his children, we never believed that our father was killed. We knew that he was tortured because when the body came home on the 29th of September of 1969, my brother remembers very clearly that his body was very bruised. So he was badly tortured. I didn't see the bruised body, but all I can tell you, I saw his face. And then when I went to greet my father, I remember somebody in the family picked me up and, and I remember taking my hands and I cupped his cheeks with my hands and I looked at him and he, a part of his face was sad but a part of his face was happy but there was a sense of peace. What independent pathology reports also indicated was there were serious injuries. For example, a number of ribs were broken. Uh, he had, Imam Harun had a blood clot, a hemotema, at the base of the skull, uh, of the spine, I beg your pardon, at the base of the spine, at the bottom of the back. So, Imam Harun's, uh, and if one looks at the extent of his injuries, was not just given a few blows over a period of a day. Pathology reports indicate that he was actually beaten over a period of days and sustained beatings over probably 10 or 14 days before he actually died. The funeral showed a totally different response because uh, for the Muslim community, for the, for the individuals, let's put it like this also, uh, in the Muslim community, you had the impression they, they just woke up from, from, uh, from a deep sleep and uh, the, the funeral was much more than a funeral pro procession. It was rather a political demonstration and, and you just imagine it's 30,000 people who just came from all, all over, all directions, and and attended the funeral. The 
people have walked with Imam's uh, body, with his beard, for over eight kilometers. And they had carried him, and over 30,000 people, it was reported, had followed him. And over 30,000 people of all walks of life. And they came to this graveyard. And one of the strangest things happened at that graveyard, and that is that the first time the security police themselves wanted to decide where to bury Imam Arun. And they chose to bury him right on top, where people with no families or people who are not known, especially criminals, would be buried. And they stood there and they had dug a grave for him. But the people of Cape Town and the Muslims in particular decided that he will be buried in this prime position, right in front, amongst the leaders, both religious leaders and Muslim political leaders, right here in front in the Makbara. Um, and by the time the security police realized he had been buried already, because there were so many people they couldn't see what was happening. That night, young people thought that the security police would dig up his grave and take him back on top. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had his own plans. And for the first time ever in recorded history, Cape Town had experienced a massive earthquake in a distant place, but the tremors were felt right here in this Magbara. It was such a powerful tremor that the security police ran away. That evening's earthquake measured 6.3 on the Richter scale. It remains the most destructive tremor in South African history. So in terms of the, the way nature responded to the, the Janazah, the burial of Imam Arun, we always uh, extracted an example of God's presence of God's anger and also the affirmation that this was a child of God. This, uh, the Shahid was a child of God. So, it was a, so nature affirmed for us was a sign and it was the voice, the earthquake was the voice of God and of the Creator. The fact that the file is not closed. The file has never been closed on Steve Biko, for example. The file has not been closed on Amar Timal, for example. So many people who died in detention, we still haven't got the answers. And even the Truth and Reconciliation Commission couldn't get close to the truth. And some families, like Imam Haroon's family, decided not to testify at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they didn't feel it was going to get them anywhere. While the search for truth continues, so do efforts to preserve the memory of Imam Abdullah Haroun. Of course, we know we lived in the era of apartheid and the Nationalist Party at that time, a white supremacist government which suppressed the people of the land. But here we capture those who died in apartheid detention, specifically from the year 1963 until the year 1990. However, you'll find that some of the people who are captured here are some of the heroes of the liberation struggle. You see people like the name in 1963, Suleiman Saluje, and then in 1965, Gaga Ngeni. We look at later on, 69, Imam Abdullah Harun. You find Michael Shivute, James Lenko, and 71, Ahmed Timol. There are numerous people throughout the history. These were stalwarts in the struggle. And we find that it captures all those 117 people of whom we know that have been documented as having been killed in uh, apartheid prisons. So as we say, we recognize these heroes in, in remembering Imam Abdullah Harun 
on Imam Abdullah Harun Road, we remind the world do not forget those who died in detention. Harun's widow died in 2019, exactly 50 years to the day after her husband. Sometimes uh, reality scripts produces a better script than fiction. So the passing of, we call her Auntie Halima Harun, the passing of Auntie Halima Harun was probably no script writer could have written that script. Yes, you know, we can say that things happen, Allah knows best. But we as ordinary human beings, we want to put meanings to things. And I think it's important to give meaning to anything that happens in our life. And I am, I will unapologetically give meaning to the fact that Imam Harun and his wife were buried on the same day, more or less at the same time. It's probably a message, message from a, a spiritual world, if I want to put it that way, that we have to actually accept and give significance to. We are busy arranging the exhibition on the life of Imam Abdullah Harun, and uh, we are busy making sure that the story of the life of Imam Harun follows a chronological pattern. Um, the boards cover different aspects of his life, such as commemorating his torture and murder in detention. And 50 years afterwards, that memory is still alive and that perpetuation of the struggle and the memory of struggle always continues. For wherever there is a need for justice, there is a, there's a need to respond to be able to manifest justice wherever there's oppression and corruption and injustice. And here we see at the foot of Signal Hill and the Lion's Head we find here the artwork depicting the mosque of Imam Abdullah Harun. Don't forget the mosque remained there but the government in that time removed all the people from that area so that it became a white area and Muslims could not uh, stay there. But up till today people went for Salah, for Jumu'ah and it continued until now, it's still a masjid. In fact, we had the commemoration, 50th commemoration at the masjid. Then we see this is the prison in town where he was questioned and interrogated. And we show some of the buildings, governmental structures, to indicate how there was this uh, overwhelming um, uh, attack on the masjid. But nonetheless, this has survived. It's in the foreground. And in fact, this artwork won the second prize in the international competition. This is one of the original versions of the book that my father wrote called The Killing of the Imam. Uh, he wrote this book, I think, to keep the imam's memory alive, but also for him, it was a cathartic experience to put this, write this book um, because he felt so guilty about the fact that the imam was tortured and killed in detention because he'd been with my father and John Collins and other people to promote the book in as many forms as they can. So the people, the youngsters who weren't around 50 years ago, people from all faiths, but even more so from those from following Islam, should know who the martyr was, who, who sacrificed himself for the struggle.
Imam Abdullah Haroun was the first cleric of any faith to die in custody under South Africa's apartheid regime. After his death, his friend Canon John Collins held a memorial service at St. Paul's Cathedral. It was the first time a Muslim had been honoured at the cathedral in this way. His life and death stand for more than resistance to apartheid. Abdullah Haroun transcended barriers, preached a message of tolerance and strove to achieve social justice. Imam Haroun never lived to see the end of apartheid in the early 1990s, but his contribution to the struggle against it will always be his lasting legacy. <laughs>